Hey friends, welcome to the 360 experience and today's episode with Brent Hicks. I want to tell you a little bit about Brent in a moment, but I have some exciting news that I want to share with you. You may have heard me mention in previous episodes that there's some coaching that comes after the conversation with me and the guest. Well, we've been compiling a post-mortem coaching library of every one of the interviews and conversations that I've participated in. And on the back end of each of these conversations is about 15 to 20 minutes of very specific pointed coaching that I have for you. So here's the great news. All of the past episodes, post-mortem coaching is available to you for free. You simply need to go to the show notes in today's episode and click on the link. It'll take you right there. And all of the future episodes that I'm going to do going forward will always have post-coaching taking place after that. Really happy to be able to bring this additional value to you, and I think it'll be helpful in you taking action. The other thing that I'd like to ask before I get to my introduction of Brent is that you subscribe to the 360 experience podcast. I'm really looking to take this to the next level for you. And a part of that process is being able to get the subscribership up so I can reach out to some really powerful people that I could have as guests on the show that will bring a tremendous amount of value. So it's super important to me. Um, and it'll be super valuable to you if you would please subscribe and tell everybody else that you're, you know, passing this podcast around to, to do the same so I can get that subscribership up. Now, Brent Hicks, let's talk about him for a moment, friends. Brent's uh, a good friend of mine at this point. He's been a client of mine for uh, about a decade now. He was a part of Leadership 360 Group 3. And Brent uh, is somebody that I've seen grown tremendously, probably more than any of my clients, I would say, in, in the sense of his business growth and his personal development growth. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in today's conversation. But Brent is an incredibly talented, educated teacher of mortgages. Um, he is the senior vice president of Cardinal Financial. He has 51 branches that he oversees. He's by far the top divisional president with that company. Uh, Brent has funded over $2 billion in loans in his career. And he has a very interesting story actually about how he was in the business and he got out of the business and he came back in and remade himself. He brings 25 years of real estate experience to this conversation. And uh, I hope that you enjoy as much as I do, this conversation with Brent Hicks in the 360 experience. Brother Brent, what's happening, man? What's going on? How are you? Good, good. I'm glad we got your lighting situation figured out. You were, uh, it's funny, I was, I was just watching, I just started watching this five-part series on HBO called Chernobyl with Liz yesterday. And, and you know, he had the whole radiation thing and your face was looking was kind of giving me flashbacks of the show, you know, it's like, man, it looks like he's had a, too much exposure to the sun or some radiation. Good to see your face I, now. I've got a glow about me. I need to start you using do. this lighting and my teeth look really white. So I, I kind of <laughs> like this. I, I'm going to have to roll with this going forward. Yeah. You might have to, you know, cut this up into like a romantic video for Stacy because she'll probably be really attracted to your white teeth. You know, look at those pearly whites. You don't have to use your crest strips anymore. <laughs> exactly. Now you're in Dallas right now, right? I am. Yeah. So, you you know, just for the listeners benefit, uh, you kind of toggle back and forth between two locations. Tell us a little bit about that. So Stacey and I had a dream for a long time to um, to have a residence in California, a second home in California and a residence here in Texas. Um, you know, we thought that was probably five or 10 years out from when we did it. And, you know, it's interesting how the universe you know, brings things. I, one of my, one of my favorite quotes is Paulo Coelho. And he says, when you really want something, all the universe conspires to help you achieve it. 
And I'm a big believer in that. I'm a big believer in manifestation. Um, Stace and I use 11.11. I even have it tattooed on my wrist here uh, to remind myself. And we see it daily. And we always manifest our goals and manifest a dream, personal, professional, every day, sometimes two times a day when we see it. And that was something we manifested for a long time was, was be able to have the second home in California, uh, be able to, to live in both places. And when COVID hit, it got weird. We got locked in and I didn't want to be locked in in Dallas, Texas. We figured let's just go to the beach. We rented a house and 30 days in, I was like, okay, this doesn't need to be a summer rental or a three month rental. This is the lifestyle. This is exactly what we wanted. And COVID gave us the cover to do it and the ability to take the leap. And it showed us that we can coexist and occupy and, and do exactly what we do from anywhere, uh, anywhere in the, anywhere in the world, but really from the, from the two, you know, two locations, it's been amazing. Um, gives me life, Tim. You know, every day I, I wake up, I'm excited. When I'm in California, you know, I look forward to coming to Texas and seeing my family and friends, and I've got something to look forward to. And when we're here, uh, like we are right now, and coming back to California in a, in a couple of days, I'm excited. I can't wait to go to the ocean and get out on my bike and get on the beach. Uh, so it does. It does always give us something to really look forward to. And I'm an ocean person, so the ocean. If I can smell it, if I can taste it. I can see it. Uh, I don't care what's going on in the world. It just makes me happy and it soothes my soul. Well, I remember, I don't know if you remember the first time we ever spoke, which was a decade ago, believe it or not. Now I had asked you like what your dream scenario was for your life, like what you were doing this for. Why, why are you working? I mean, at that time you were still running evolve and I want to get back into a little bit of your history here in a moment. And you were getting back into the mortgage business and remaking yourself as a mortgage professional, which is a fascinating story that I think that we need to, to discuss for a few moments. Cause I think you learned a lot from, from the first go around and parlay that then into the second go around. But you had said to me, you said, my dream scenario is I'm on a boat with a bunch of friends we're drinking, I think, either champagne or white wine. I don't remember. We're eating lobster. And 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 where you were then versus where you are now is astonishing. I mean, in the intro uh, that I recorded prior to us jumping into this conversation, I said that, you know, I have a lot of clients that I've known for a long time now. And I'd put you at the top of the list, man, of the person that's had the most growth over the period of time that that I've I've known you. I mean, you've You've grown so much as a business professional. We're going to get into how that's evolved here in a moment. And, and even more, I think, bro, as a person, which um, I definitely want to discuss that in a little bit too. And I love that you already started off with one of your favorite quotes because I can I consider you to be a quote king. I mean, you've got a lot of them in your arsenal. I'm going to ask you to bust some of them out here over the course of the next 90 minutes or so. But give us the, the high level, you know, 50,000 feet. When did you get started in the mortgage business? Why did you get out? What did you do in the interim? Why did you get back in? And maybe a little bit about like what you learned that made this second go around so much more impactful than the first? Yeah. Um, 1997, I got in the mortgage business. At the time, I was working three jobs. Um, during the day, I was selling copiers for a company called Minolta, working you know eight to five selling copiers. I had two zip codes in Dallas-Fort Worth. You know, they were more blue-collar you know, uh, region or location. I was selling copiers to uh, repair shops and some small businesses was bartending uh, two different jobs. So I'd work from eight to five, five to 10, Monday through Thursday, Friday, I'd work eight to five, five to 10, and then 10 to four Saturday, I'd work two bars from 
you know, four to 10, 10 to four. And there were some patrons coming in the, one of the restaurants I worked at and they were in the mortgage business. And I don't know if you've ever had this, but you see somebody that's doing something you're like, they, they, if they're doing it, I can do it too. I knew that I had the tenacity. I had the grit. I had the work ethic. Um, and I realized that the job I had at the time was a, a very low ceiling. Uh, I could only have so much success. I mean, I was limited to two zip codes, selling people copiers. No one was ever going to refer me somebody that wanted to buy a copier. It's not an organic or conversation that people would naturally have. Who do you know that, you know, did you, that's leashed your copier? And then for them to know someone in their zip code to refer me business, I, I was at my limit of what I could make. I was burning holes in my shoes, banging on doors. Uh, summers here in Texas are brutal. That summer, it was like 100 degrees for 60 some odd days straight. I had my, you know, my cheap wool sh suits that I was wearing. You know, the black car at 105 degrees and like I need to get out of this dead-end job and I need to find something with residual income and you know when I saw the mortgage industry I thought okay this is interesting it's intriguing because everybody that that I would possibly meet has a dream of owning a home generally and not just one home right if it's every seven years that someone's changing a home or refinancing it was a balanced amount of opportunity and, and I really saw it as anyone that I possibly meet if I can lend in 50 states, then any relationship I ever have has the ability to give me, you know, endless referrals. And, and so I sought my way into it. Uh, I found someone to hire me. I left the Minolta job and I kept my two jobs bartending. Uh, that's what funded me through it. And I, I have to say, I started off right at the top. I found someone to hire me and they were doing subprime manufactured housing. They didn't have any FHA license. They had never, never done a conventional conforming loan, didn't know what MI was. Uh, so I just started banging on manufactured home dealers, getting you know business. It, it took me six months before I made a single commission uh, and I grinded it out, you know, the bar jobs funding me through that. And, and, and then things started to you know, really take off for me about six months into the business. And, and we really started getting into a good cadence. Uh, back then I was 97 when I started, I didn't have any mentors. Uh, I was a college dropout or I am a college dropout. I, I dropped out after my sophomore year in college, uh, drove to Texas, uh, going to date myself a little bit. I didn't have a cell phone back then. That was in 1994 and I had $300 in my name. And because my parents were super paranoid and conservative, they told me to get a cashier's check. So I went to the bank, got a $300 cashier check for my life savings, and I loaded up my car and drove to Texas. Um, about 10 miles from my brother's house, I ran out of gas. Uh, didn't have a cell phone. So I had to hike my way to a pay phone. Hope my brother was actually at his house at the time when I called him to come find me, and I didn't know where the fuck I was. So it was a, it was a really interesting beginning. Um, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't change, wouldn't change any of it. So, so then, so then you grew, I want to make a footnote here real quick uh, for everyone to really take note of is that the, the work ethic part, right? Like, I mean, you know, that, that's something that maybe isn't discussed quite enough, but I mean, there are some people that just don't need to have their back put against the wall to rise to the occasion. They just do it naturally. And, and the fact that you had three different jobs, two bartending jobs, and, and then this Minolta thing, I mean, that, that, that was a sign early on that you had the work ethic. And, you know, I, I went through a similar process. I worked in the supermarket business and my, at the same time that I started as a loan originator. And I think there's something important about that too, because 
when you were doing the double bartending thing and you were starting to do loans for the first time, you could afford to really invest in your growth and your learning and not cut corners and, and these types of things to really craft that niche that you were going after was just these manufactured homes, FHA, I think you said, um, you know, you didn't, you, you could afford to stick it out because you had a day job that, that paid you some money or in this case, a night job. So when you, when you got to your, your, your peak performance in the first go around was like 2005, 2006, right? Give us an example. We'll get into the things that you did in a moment, but I want to go through the timeline real quick. Where did you peak out at and, and why did you stop? Yeah. In 2006, that was my high water mark, so to speak. Uh, that year it was 176 million in personal production, 95, 98% purchase. Um, you know, my, my best month back then was a hundred and something transactions or loans. But yeah, 176 million one month. It was 32 million in personal production. That was December of 2006. Wait, time out. I lost you. I lost you there for a second. You said 176 million in your best. Oh, best month year. was best year was 176 and 32 million one month. 32 million one month. Okay, got mm -hmm. it. And how many units approximately was that? That was about 1,100 units. Oh, that's just crushing. I mean, 1,100 units. You had to have some systems in place and, and all of that. So then you have this apex of a, of a of a year, and then you got out. Why'd you get out and when? So 2000, yeah, 2007, we saw the cracks pretty early on. We were pretty prolific in the Alt-A space at the time. Um, we were probably top two or three lender of the country doing Alt-A. And I had a builder account that we had we had. One overtime, I started doing loans for for Pulte in Dallas Fort Worth. Um, my dad used to always tell, kill, "Kill the queen, the nest dies with it," which means go after the decision maker that actually has influence, and you can accomplish a lot more. And so I realized that I had my toe in the door with with this builder, and a lot of our business was builder turned down throughout DFW. Pulte being the size that they were, uh, I started to network my way into to the other regionals and and other originators that work from a centralized hub out of Colorado and started spending time with them, finding out who the decision makers were, flew out there, met with them. Uh, you know, I had a plan at the time. I had a deck, the presentation, and I was reading a book called Chasing Daylight. Um, that book was, was about a guy named Eugenio Kelly. He was the CEO of KPMG at the time. Him and his wife, it's called Chasing Daylight. Him and his wife used to love to chase daylight in the afternoon. So five o'clock, He'd get off, pick up his wife, and they'd go chase daylight trying to get in nine holes or 10 holes, 11 holes of golf. And then all of a sudden at you know, 50 years old or so, he got diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. At the top of his career pinnacle, he had everything materialistic he could, he could want, had a great life and a great family, and now he's got terminal brain cancer. And what he talked about was how he closed out the loops of his life and, and really broke it down into... And into, into loops. We've got an outer loop, which are acquaintances, people that we've met, people that we know, but they're not as tight of relationships. Then you've got your, you know, kind of closer circle. And those may be the 20 or 30 relationships that are more meaningful. And then you got your inner loop and that's the eight or 10 people that are the most meaningful in your life. And he went and systematically closed those loops of friendships and said goodbye and told people what it meant to him. And reading that book, and I finished it on the plane ride to, to meet with Pulte, I realized that our value proposition wasn't all these things and products in the deck. It was quality of life. Um, here they had a mortgage business of which, you know, 20, 30% they were turning down. And these loan originators for Pulte were having to spend all their time chasing these OS OSLs for conditions and what's going on and statuses. 
and I knew that I could provide them a quality of life. I had the systems and the technology to provide them consistent updates where they weren't going to have to chase us. And that was what was really meaningful for these people that would ultimately send me the referrals. And so we changed our presentation. We pitched it on quality of life. And next thing you know, they were sending us business in California and Arizona and Nevada and next thing it led to Florida and uh, Colorado and a bunch of states. And so it really grew to be something significant. So having the, the, an entirely different value proposition associated with something that would be purposeful and meaningful for them, that would be heartfelt for them, was a game changer as it related to the way you presented yourself. You represented freedom and a higher quality of life versus the mechanics of your 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 offering, which was a lending product. You you positioned it differently, and that changed the way that they perceived you as a person that was bringing value to them. And there was no monetary gain for them, so I really had to digest. What was, what was in it for them? What was the true meaning? What could I do for them that would bring them, you know, significance or quality or an enhancement that would want them to send business to us? So yeah, that was, that was a big epiphany. Um, not, not just in, in that business or in that realm, but, but in life. So then this is obviously before you got out of the business, correct? I mean, you, mm -hmm. you left the business in what, 07? In, in 09. In 09, and you went off to do uh, run a company called Evolve, which was a multi-level marketing company associated with like a vitamin product or a, a vitamin beverage, correct? Correct. Yep. We started off with a enhanced water product, and that led us into, I don't know, 14 different products, a bunch of different countries. Um, you know, in 2007, the business changed. We stopped funding loans on our warehouse line because we realized that every loan we funded was a potential um, loss, right? It was contingent liability on every single loan. These loans were getting haircut and scratched and dent like they were going out of style. So we stopped funding loans on the warehouse line. I moved my group to another company and I didn't do a good job. I wasn't, I wasn't as good of a steward in vetting this next opportunity. We joined, they moved into my office, their corporate office. We co-shared this space that I had. And then four months in, they called me on a Sunday, wanted me to come up to the office and talk to them. And they figured out their, uh, you know, CFO had embezzled about $4 million. She really had sort of double booking loans and it created this deficit. And so four months in, they're filing bankruptcy. My people aren't going to get paid. And, uh, and, and it was taxing on me. Like I had made this decision and, and been the steward of this ship. And I brought us into rocky or turbulent water. Uh, after that, I, I moved my group to another organization that was very safe, that had financial stability and wherewithal. Uh, the rates had come back down and I built the business back up. But the, the year that I left, which was 2009, I had funded over hundred million myself through June. So I was on track to do a couple of hundred million dollars in personal production. But yeah, Dodd-Frank, you had all this regulation coming in and I had spent a lot of time building a mortgage practice, but I felt like I didn't, I didn't have the world-class MBA that I wanted to have in, in growing a traditional business. At the time, I had a really good friend that uh, had some unbelievable successes. He was one of the people that took Realtor.com public, had uh, another $400 million exit, and we had invested in this technology together. And as we we're looking for ways to market it, we landed on network marketing. And I thought that, okay, I can go learn from someone that's had some really big exits that I could get that world-class MBA and grow a more traditional business. And so I left the mortgage space, started Evolve, 
Uh, that was that was July of 2009. Then you came back to the mortgage business when? 2013. Okay. I and took almost a five-year sabbatical. And what brought you back to it? And what did you bring to the mortgage business the second go around that's noteworthy that you think had a lot to do with where, where you know, where, where you land today in this moment? So I realized quickly that um, maybe I was a, a little uh, rash in my decision to just get out of the mortgage business. I had spent a long time building this and we had a, a gr- good process, good system, good team. And six months into it, I was like, okay, well, that was a mistake. I could have kept my mortgage business rolling and I could have been doing these other endeavors without just burning it to the ground. About six months in, you know, the saying, if you, if you love someone, you let them go and they come back, you've always had them. But I kind of felt like that was the mortgage space. And I knew that growing this other business, um, while I may be good at it, I had real passion for the mortgage space. And that distance gave me the ability to really see it for what it was and and realize that that was the thing that I loved more than anything was was being in the mortgage space. Uh, What do you love about it? it? I I love everything about it. I love the energy. I love the dynamics. I love solving problems. I mean, there's always the jigsaw puzzle, the Rubik's Cube that we're doing. It's amazing to help people. It's amazing to help people get financially free, you know, our people that we work with. Um, so I, I always just enjoyed the challenge. I enjoyed the fast paced nature of it. And there was just endless opportunity in, in our mortgage space it always has been. And I think there always will be, um, whatever we want, we can accomplish in that space and, and use it as a vehicle to, to do multiple things. So when you came back in, you started originating loans again, but you quickly shifted, right? You, re, you remade yourself to what you are today. So tell us a little bit about that. Like, what was the intentionality behind, you know, I'm going to come back in, I'm going to originate loans, but I'm going to quickly grow it. And, and, you know, where were you then and where are you now? Because it's a pretty astonishing um, evolution, I, I must say. So I spent four years whiteboarding it out. I knew that I was going to get back in the mortgage space. I had to get evolved to a place that I could start to pull myself out because now I had people that I'd made commitments to. People joined our organization based off of you know, things that I committed to them. And so I couldn't just walk away from this business and put people in harm's way. So I spent five years really with a whiteboard saying, okay, I don't have any previous structures. I don't have anything that I've agreed to that I'm having to honor. What, did, what would I do differently? How would I compensate people? Um, you know, what, what would be the way that we would engage people? What I realized is I was very transactional the first time around. I was focused on how many units. That was that was the measuring stick that we measured our success by was how many units per month, how many units per year. And I probably had, well, I didn't probably, I had relationships that were toxic. Um, I had zero boundaries. So if it was 10 o'clock on a Sunday, I would answer the phone. And I didn't care if people abused me or my team. I was just in it for the units. And I realized that I didn't create the relationships, though I may have had a big database uh, at the time, and and I did a bunch of loans. It was more transactional, and so for for that five years, I noticed parallels in the in the direct sales space. And a, a lot of what I learned there in that business is there was no carrot and stick; it's just a carrot. So how do I inspire people to do things? Um, how do I build disciples out of every relationship that I come across? How do I come from a place of reciprocity? And that was a big mindset shift for me. Is the come from a place of genuinely giving. When we started Evolve, I had an idea about creating a Tom Shoes type concept. Um, We shelved that for about three years and then three years into Evolve, 
in, in one of these epiphany moments, I, I realized that it was incumbent upon us that we had to give. And I had to do it naturally and I had to do it in a way that I wasn't adding to my price. I had to be able to give based off of consumption. I wanted to build a social business where people off just the act of buying or consuming or selling that they were naturally going to give. And so we, we launched what was what we call buy one, nourish one. So for every product we sold, if there were 30 servings, say in a bag of shakes, then we would nourish 30 kids. And so we launched this 5013C, all about nourishing children worldwide, going and trying to attack the, you know, the, the global pandemic or, or global issues of malnourishment. Kids aren't dying from starvation. They're dying from malnourishment. At the time, we happen to have a product that um, could help eradicate that. And so that's what we did. We launched into it. And that really changed my mindset around giving, coming from a place of generally giving, not looking to receive. And as we transition that into the mortgage space, it was all about building reciprocity, um, investing into our people, investing into, into future disciples, and spending a long time, you know, and maybe in a multi-year facet on how we could go about building disciples with everyone that we, we touched. So that was really the, the, yeah, that was, that was the cause and what I wanted to accomplish and and getting back in the mortgage space. Yeah. So this term um, disciples, I want to, I want to go a little deeper with you on that. And and I think it plays into the concept of reciprocity as well. Right. I mean, the two kind of work hand in glove. Um, Tell us a little bit about your philosophies on that. What are some specific things that originators can be doing right now to, you know, embody this spirit of giving and what can they be giving and offering? Um, what are some, some important things for them to be thinking about that they need to be doing to enhance their offering? You know, I, I think back to my conversation with Barry Habib um, a couple of months ago uh, where we talked about the subject matter of networking and his philosophy on networking and how networking is really about trying to understand what the need is of the person that you're networking with and to give them something that helps fulfill that need with no agenda, no requirement of, of reciprocity, just I'm going to give. And if I give to enough people and our boy, Stevie Grossman has talked about this. I mean, this is definitely something that he's phenomenal at that the rest will take care of itself. So uh, what are some of the things that, that, you think that originators could be doing right now to create ambassadors and to evoke the law of reciprocity? I think, look, you got you to put yourself in their shoes. Most of the time in our space, it's transactional. Uh, we use the word transaction a lot of times, even in our vernacular. So that's something that I'm, um, I, I've been very intentional about is I don't want to use the word transaction. I don't even want to use the word client. I want to use the word future disciple because that's my goal. I'll settle on a raving fan. Um, Spencer Johnson, you know, has the raving fan book, and we probably have all used that term. It's probably overused. In my mind, a, a raving fan is an acceptable place to be, but discipleship is where we're going. And so how do I start from the very first impression? That for me is a, is a handwritten thank you card. Uh, a lot of people do it. I think it's a lost art still. It starts the, the relationship. And so my goal is we take an application. We send a handwritten thank you card out that day. We put a scratch-off ticket right in there, let me know how you did. Hopefully that hits their mailbox the next day. And, and the intention behind that is if they're gonna shop us against multiple lenders, maybe the next day they get that card, they haven't called anybody else and subconsciously I'll start to build some belief. Maybe that little bit just starts to say, wow, that was pretty thoughtful of them. And I can head off that next phone call and I can start to move myself down that path. 
And then along the way, it's, it's always about gifting and, and giving people things that they're not expecting. Uh, a big part of our process is a multi-year, you know, multi-prong approach behind gifting. I don't ask for referrals. I don't, you know, use, we love referrals. I don't send tchotchkes. Um, tchotchkes is something like a title company gives you pens or notebook pads or something that you really wouldn't want. You throw it in the trash can because there's no value and it's just a marketing. They're just giving this out to everybody. So I send very intentional gifts that feel like they're the only ones that got it. So 4th of July, I'll send them stainless steel grill sets. Uh, Memorial Day, I'll send them like Yeti uh, tumblers or wine tumblers or, or you know, tumblers for their, for their drinks. I'll write something like my wife and I, you know, came across these last year, loved them, thought you guys would enjoy it. Fourth uh, of July, it's, it's, I hope you're going to get out and enjoy your backyard this summer with your family. Uh, this is something my wife and I have used and we love this. You know, that's all it is. Fourth of uh, Memorial, let's see, then it's Thanksgiving. I send them holiday cookbooks, Bluetooth speaker for Christmas, and then every year birthday cards. And so I'll do five gifts year one, three gifts year two, and then every year after I'll send them something on their birthday. Again, I'm not asking for anything. It's well after the quote unquote transaction happened. They're not expecting anything from us, much less gifts that keep on coming without asking for anything in return. Yeah, you're catching them by surprise when their guard is down, starts right away at the beginning when you take the time, because that's the key thing is you've invested the time into writing that handwritten note card. Just a little bit of feedback. I'm not a huge fan for whatever it's worth of the scratch off card because it starts to feel a little salesy to me at that point. Like I think that the words that are in that card are like critically important. If you could personalize it based upon something you learned about the person and the conversation you had with them. So it really feels like this person is reaching out to me and forming a connection with me. Um, I think that's really important. The question that begs though is, so you're spending a ton of money on sending out these non tchotchke items. And I remember us talking about the difference in Nashville. You talked about the difference between tchotchkes and, you know, spending the extra money and giving them something that will be meaningful and that they will keep because when they keep it, then they are consistently reminded of you all the time. And you don't need to throw your company logo and all that shit on there because all that does is then put an agenda to the gift saying, hey, I'm trying to sell you on something. It's not about that. It's about giving and trusting that there will be reciprocity. But what do you spend? What's your budget for that, bro? That's like a lot of money that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, right? so a couple of things. And this is this is another piece of it to me. The energy around it, you know, expense is a word that I don't want to use because it's an investment. Oh, um, Stacy and I, back a long time ago, we had a plan to be millionaires. We're the first millionaires in our family. We were investing at the time, it started off at $3,000 a month. And 99 happened, stock market crashed. I read, I read The Richest Man in Babylon took those principles from investing in myself, investing in others. And I took the money we're investing in stock market and invested it back in my business. That's when my business really started to grow. The more I invested, the more money I ultimately made. It was the byproduct of that investment. And, and so I don't like the word expense around an investment in my mortgage business because it, it is an investment in my long-term business and my clients. Well, hello, friends. And I hope that you're enjoying this episode of the 360 Experience podcast. To listen to the remainder of this episode, please visit us at The Loan Atlas, where you will also find the most comprehensive resource for mortgage professionals to build their practice, backed by the greatest faculty that's ever been assembled in the mortgage industry. Check us out at the link below or go to theloanatlas.com.
www.thrivingcapital.com. Look forward to having you as a guest on our next episode of the 360 Experience Podcast.